You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. And finally, our third sponsor is 988. The Oklahoma 988 Mental Health Lifeline, 988 is a direct three-digit lifeline that connects you with trained behavioral health professionals that can get all Oklahomans the help that they need. Learn more by visiting 988oklahoma.com. That's 988oklahoma.com. And now, let's get into today's episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hoon here, your host, back with another episode. Uh, We are in a jewelry store right now. It's coming up to Christmas. Um, My wife doesn't listen to this podcast, which is a good thing, because she's going to get let down if she did listen to this podcast and expected jewelry for Christmas. Um, Because there's a lot of really cool, shiny things in this store, and... I have to walk through, I feel like I have to walk out of here without my glasses on, not to get sucked into some of the guy stuff that I'm looking at through the window too. Um, but my guest today is Valerie Nafee of Nafee Fine Jewelry. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me into the store and excited to share your story today. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Mike. Lovely to have you here. Glad you finally made it in. Finally made it in, yes. <laughs> I have uh, an extra pair of glasses if you need them on the way no, out. <laughs> I know, That's, it's gonna be dangerous. It's funny, I had the conversation with my wife driving back from Tulsa this morning. So, what are we doing for Christmas this year? And she's like, I don't know. I mean, do you need anything? I was like, not really. You know, you kind of get to that stage. We don't have kids. And, right. You know, you get to that stage, you're like, I don't need anything. And I mean, things that I want are not what you generally get for Christmas. You know, I'd like, I'd love a Porsche 911. Yes. I don't think my wife's going to buy me one of those for Christmas. <laughs> uh, that's something I got to work hard for. But, um, you know, it, a lot of people think about jewelry, especially over the holidays. And you guys done a great job of decorating this place for the holidays. Thank you. Um, it looks fantastic in here. And there's a lot of, a lot of British theme in here at the moment. I think ah. a lot of the, you know, I have no idea what you call those things behind us, but the top hat figures, whatever, the, what are they called? Oh, the Nutcrackers. The Nutcrackers. They remind me of back home for some reason. Oh, that's right. And where are you from? Uh, Wales in the UK. Oh, that's right. So. You, you did mention that over the phone. Well, um, I have to... I have to really thank my husband, George, for the decorating. Mm-hmm. He, his entire career, he was in event planning uh, in New York and Las Vegas and then here for 10 years and okay. he's a master florist. So um, yeah. I don't have to micromanage that that anymore, which is fantastic. That's, nice. That's really yeah, nice. Yeah, it makes life a little bit easier. Yeah, for sure. Well, usually it's the other way around, right? Usually it's like, you know, you don't expect, there's very few stories that the husband is in the industry that he's in and he's very, very organized and does the thing. That's not a guy thing, right? Usually. It's typically not, but he's one of the most organized people I've ever met. So. Right. Lashed onto a good Creative one. Sure. and yeah. organizational which those two things normally don't go hand in hand yeah. well 
I'm sure, as you know, and as the listeners know, we like to set some context. I mean, mm-hmm. how does this all... Did, are you, were you, did you grow up like every other young girl and think, you know, diamonds are a girl's best friend and I just want to have a diamond one day? How you know, this- not at all. Not no. at all. I, it, if you had asked me when I was, you know, five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, if I ever thought I'd be in the jewelry business, I probably would have... My eyes would have crossed and I would have started laughing because I I was a... I grew up a tomboy. I was the middle uh, child in between two boys. And, um, you know, I... uh was not interested in jewelry at all. My 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 father uh, was very very creative, um, and I say was he and my mother are have both passed. My mom was a stay at home mom, but my father was a true Renaissance man. He uh, painted and sculpted beautifully and was self taught. He had a fabulous baritone voice. He sang occasionally with the Tulsa Opera Company. He sang frequently with the Tulsa Philharmonic. He was uh, professionally in radio and television broadcast. And so we were just, all of us, uh, my brothers and I were raised in a very, very creative household. And I really was gunning to be an architect. And along the way toward being an architect, um, I changed my mind and thought I might segue into graphic design. And then along the way to becoming a graphic designer, one of my professors at the University of Tulsa recommended me for an apprenticeship with a local jewelry designer and she needed someone to help her she was beginning to get some notoriety and her business had some legs and anyway I was the one who went and interviewed and got that position and I I showed up at the interview fully prepared to uh say thank you very much, but no thank you, because I just thought a jewelry, you know, jewelry, I don't even know how to make jewelry. And I told her that. I said, you know, I've never had any of the jewelry making classes. Well, that's okay. That's okay. Anyway, um, it turns out that she didn't just want clerical help or sales help, which is what I thought she was wanting. Um, she actually wanted to, to teach someone how to make jewelry. And um, that part fascinated me. And so I accepted the position. And the first day I sat down at a bench and carved a wax model, I just was flooded with joy. And I knew I found my home. Yeah. So those amazing. light bulb moments don't happen very often, you know? Right. Some, sometimes people will go their whole life and never have that. So I feel like I got really lucky. Yeah. And so how old are you at that time? I was 19. It was the summer of my sophomore year in college and I needed to work. Um, I, you know, my dad was trying to put three kids through college and he couldn't afford to foot the whole bill. And so I had to pay for half of my tuition and my books. And uh, when I was able finally to move out of the house, I had to pay, you know, for room and board. So I, I was a worker. (laughs) <laughs> what, what uh, take it back a little bit, what initially gets you into the design, the graphic design, the architect, architect side mm. of things? Like, why that? Fish? You know, so my father, um, my father, everything that he painted or sculpted was, you know, he did a lot of still lifes. Mm. Um, he started out with acrylics and then went into oil painting. He was that, that type of artist who could literally sit down and sketch you with pen and paper or pencil and capture your likeness exactly. And my older brother and my younger brother had that same ability. But when I sat down and tried to draw something or someone, it kind of ended up looking like a cubist painting. (laughs) And you know, it's really interesting. I tell a lot of um, young artists or, or young creatives this. 
at that time, I thought I wasn't any good. Yeah. Right? I thought that because I couldn't look at a person or a dog and draw it exactly like that, I thought, oh, that just means I'm not any good. So, but no, it just really means I have a different way of seeing things and I have a different point of view. And most oftentimes the artists in life who become the most successful, even if it's after their death, like Van Gogh, it's because they had a different point of view. And maybe people don't understand it at the moment when they're working, but then, you know, it informs so many other things and causes so much change and a shift. So I just, um, I thought, well, I, I can't draw and I don't really paint very well and nothing ever looks like it, what it's supposed to look like. But I loved architecture and I loved, I would spend hours when I was a kid drawing floor plans, you know, for like my dream house when I was 12 years old. So anyway, I, I just liked the spatial. I think I like the spatial nature. Yeah. And, and what really happened too, I didn't understand until that first day I sat down and carved that wax model. I didn't understand I was supposed to be working with my hands. I'm, you know, that I physically I needed because I became um, the model maker for our company and I ended up making for for a, you know, three year period of time, I ended up probably making 60 percent of the models, yeah. you know, for the jewelry we made and loved it. Did really you, loved it. Do you draw the floor plan of the house you live in now? Um, I designed the backyard. Okay. <laughs> I haven't, I moved into a new house two years ago and I completely scraped the backyard yeah. and I had a vision and yeah. And yes, uh, I do a lot of the decorating in the house. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so when you have in this moment then in your 19 year sophomore in college, you have this moment that, you know, you think, wow, like this is a bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. I'm working with my hands. I kind of, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy building and, and doing this maybe, mm-hmm. you know, I guess at the time it's probably, you know, yes, it's an income. I enjoy it. It's a job I need it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. You know, um, that part came slowly. I yeah. really enjoyed it so much. And by the time I graduated from the University of Tulsa, I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So as a backup plan, I took the LSAT uh-huh. just so I'd be prepared. And I, I, in my mind, I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a year. I'm going to work at this full time for a year. And at the end of a year, if I'm still learning, still growing, if I still like it, then I'm going to stick with it for another year and not go to law school. And I did that every year for six years. And finally, after the sixth year, and and then I moved to Oklahoma City from Tulsa to open up a second location for the lady I was working for. And so after six years, I thought, wow, I guess this is my gig, yeah. right? This is, this is it. So I, I worked for other people for 14 and a half years and then started my own retail store in 1998. Yeah. So, so when you are, you know, like every other, every year, you're like one more year, mm-hmm. one more year and you mm-hmm. get to that and you, like mm-hmm. I said, you move to Oklahoma City to open a second store mm-hmm. and it is becoming a career. Mm-hmm. When, to that point then, when do you think, I, I, one day maybe I'll do my own before, you know, basically doing multiple apprenticeships for the same person, right? You're just learning all this Mm -hmm. time. Yes. And then you think, you know what? Yes. I I should do my own thing. You know, business ownership isn't for everyone. Mm -hmm. And, and without saying, you know, I, I, it's not for everyone. And I don't know that I would have gone off and started my own business Except for the fact that after 14 and a half years of growing in, 
my career and in my profession, um, I really, really wanted to work at a very high level, especially in custom design, because um, I, the 14 and a half years before I started my own company, I, I still, I, I was doing custom design the entire time for clients, even though I did not have um, my own staff or jewelers who I employed. Sure. And I, at some point, I just wasn't able to really service my clientele the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And I felt constrained. Um, you know, everybody who owns a business has their vision. Yeah. And they need their employees to buy into that vision, right? And so at some point, my vision for what I wanted to do just didn't jive with the employer yeah. I was working for at that time. And that's when I just knew... I need to just go do this for myself right. or not do it at all. Yeah. And, and I guess because you've already moved to Oklahoma City to open a second store, mm -hmm. you kind of go through everything. You know mm -hmm. what opening a store is mm -hmm. like. And then mm -hmm. you've been doing this for 14 and a half years. Mm -hmm. You've built up, you know, a clientele, a base, a friendship, a community. I, around. They knew you. They yes, knew your name too. I had people, by the time I opened my my first store, which was actually a little lease department, a sub-lease department inside of Balliots, mm -hmm. which most people who live in Oklahoma City know what Balliots is, and um, it used to be located in 50 Pin Place, and now it's in Class and Kerr, and I, in 98, I opened up a little sublease department inside of Balliots, and was there for four years, and we just had a great run there, and I probably would have stayed, except that we just outgrew the space, and then they didn't have any more space to give us. Yeah. So then um, we migrated north to Cassidy Square and built out a lovely corner space there. And we were there from 2002 until uh, June 14th of 2019. Okay. And, you know, I, like you said, I had clients um, who had followed me and who were with me. And it gave me a lot more confidence. It's very different if you're new in a community and you just try to open a store depend a jewelry store because sure. we find the jewel you know the jewelry business is really a relationship business a lot of people might think that it's simply transactional but there are so many things we do beyond selling jewelry there's so many other things we do yeah so. well and back to what you said earlier as well about the design side of mm -hmm. things you know you build up such a trust and you build up such a relationship mm -hmm. with your clients that i'm sure there's been plenty of times and i'm sure it happens you know it probably happens a lot more now than it did at the beginning is people come to you and say i have a vision i have an idea mm -hmm. will you go design something for me mm -hmm. which as an artist mm -hmm. gives you so much confidence and so mm -hmm. much uh, at the beginning it's probably nerve-wracking right like yes they really really me yes yeah, you want me to do it you <laughs> yes uh, yes but that's you know it's, it's just part of growing and then part of building that brand that you have yes yes and i've always been known for custom design and um you know, that we, I didn't employ my own jewelers until about 2006, I, I want to say. Um, and, and we started out with one, quickly added another one. And I just can't even believe it. We've got six full-time jewelers back in our design lab now, as well as a woman who does stringing and wire wrapping for us. And we are busy, 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 busy. <laughs> but, and, and just back to your point, 
You know, I used to get so nervous when people would ask me to design something for them. Um, and I don't want to say I don't get nervous anymore. I do, but I don't know how many thousands of pieces I've designed and made, you know, in the last 39 years that I've been in this business. And, and I think what I still enjoy about working with individuals um, who bring design projects in is you learn something from them. And inevitably, somebody gives you a challenge and you have to think about something in a way that you've never thought about before. So it, it, yeah. you know, it keeps you fresh and creative and on your toes. So do you have a specialty on the design side? Oh, golly. Um, I, I suppose the way to answer that is we, we mostly concentrate in working in high carat gold, okay. 18 carat yellow, 22 carat yellow. Um, I also work in white gold and platinum. Um, but my personal love is the richness of the high carat gold. And in my own line, I just have a passion for colored gemstones and pearls. So in my own line, you see lots of color, lots of pearls. And, um, I'm really good at things that are asymmetrical, what, which is kind of funny because what I've found over the years is probably 70 to 75% of people I work with want things to be symmetrical. They want everything to be even. If it's a ring, they want the left side to look like the right side. They want the top to look like the bottom. But I'm really, really good with things that are asymmetrical. And, yeah. and, I, and I love that. I find a lot of fun. With the design side as well, do you see, you know, because the beauty of jewelry and, and especially the person, especially if it's a personal piece to someone, you might be designing, you know, in Oklahoma, Oklahoma is such a melting pot. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm from the UK and I'm mm -hmm. doing this, right? Mm -hmm. like, it, there's so many cultures and, and stories and just people here. Do you travel a lot to get a lot of your inspiration or, or if someone comes in, you might not know their background or their culture before you might not be aware of it. And then you learn something, you think, I want to go mm -hmm. to Japan or mm -hmm. I want to go to the Middle East, so Middle East or wherever it is. Like, mm -hmm. as you've gone through your, you know, 39 year career of doing this, I mean, my, I got, there's so many questions in this, but no, let's start with the first one. Do you travel a lot to get inspiration? At, at certain times in my life, I've traveled a lot. Yeah. Um, I have a daughter who will be 28 next month. And um, when she was younger, I didn't like to travel so much. Oh. Prior to... Um, Prior to having children, I actually had the good fortune to travel to Asia mm. quite a bit. The lady I apprenticed with and worked for and moved to Oklahoma City for uh, was wonderful and took me on gemstone buying and pearl buying trips to Hong Kong and Bangkok. And I had the good fortune to go with her multiple times uh, over a period of seven years and found, you know, in the beginning I had no desire to go to Asia. I remember as a young child growing up, China was completely cut off right. from the world. And I remember when Richard Nixon, this would be back in the 70s, broke through and was able to go and meet the Chinese president at the time, what a big deal that was. And nobody knew anything about China. And then Hong Kong, of course, until 2000 was a British colony, uh, but it was just so far away. And so it was nothing I ever thought about. I had been to Europe once and fell in love with it. But then suddenly I get to go to Hong Kong and I get to go to Thailand and it was just fabulous, yeah. just fabulous. 
And fast forward, I've been back to um, Europe many times, been to Mexico, um, and every time, I, my daughter and I took a trip in 2019 to Malaysia and Japan, and Japan was quite fascinating. I, I really realized that I thought, what I thought I knew about Japan wasn't true at all, and so it was fascinating. Um, learning a lot of things about that country. And to answer your question, yes, every time I travel, I just am inspired, you know, either by the, the colors or the smells or the architecture. I would say, you know, Venice, Italy is one of my favorite places just to lose myself and walk because there are so many cultural influences that came into that place in the 16th and 17th centuries, multicultural influences. And you find a, you find a lot of interesting yeah. um, art and architecture in, in Venice. So yeah, so yeah I, I always carry a little notebook with me you know, a um, little sketch pad, little notebook, so that I can just quickly, you know, jot something down so that I can remember it. It's, I've been to Japan once, mm -hmm. and it was exactly the same feeling mm -hmm. of, I, this was not, not what I expected, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's so weird going to a place where there is no English on any road signs or anything, and you just like, I am in the middle of nowhere right yes. now. But the people are so nice. They are. They love fashion, and it's quite, outlandish fashion yes. right it's like I remember walking through a mall or walking through a shopping center place and it was as if the people walking towards me as if they'd gone into the store seen a mannequin seen the entire outfit on a mannequin and gone I want the whole thing yes and then walked out the store right the shoes the, the handbag yeah and, yes and also pets in strollers was another different yes. thing I was like well this is crazy yes <laughs> yes but well crazy place. yeah it's it's I think sometimes and and not to, to get away from talking about jewelry, but just culturally, you know, when, especially for, for Americans, because it's a big country and Canada borders us to the north and they speak English, unless you're in yeah. Quebec, and Mexico's to the south and, you know, um, but, but most Americans aren't traveling south of the border. They, they might fly to Cancun or fly to Puerto Vallarta. Or, and they're staying at but, a hotel. But we just, the we're hotel, just right? not exposed yeah. to a lot of different other cultures and languages. And you get to some place like Japan and you think, you, you just, I don't know about you, but I kind of tended to throw all of the Asians into one category. Sure. You know, the yeah. Chinese, the Japanese, the Thai, the Malay, mm -hmm. and they're all different. Mm -hmm. And then the Japanese culture was so different mm -hmm. than... than the Thai culture and the Malaysian culture and yeah. even different from the Chinese. How, when you, when you went with the, you know, when you went with the lady you used to work for, mm -hmm. how old were you at that point? I believe went? the first trip I made, I would have been almost, I would have been 20. Okay. I would have been 20 years old. Such a great 20 or 21. Young, yeah. Maybe yeah. 21. So long time ago, yeah. but maybe well, 21. But to be that age uh -huh. and go over there and uh -huh. see that part uh -huh. of the world and, and jump on probably two or three flights mm -hmm. to get there. Like that's such a great oh, adventure. It's, oh, it's, yes, definitely, definitely at least three flights. And, um, uh, really the jewelry industry is such an international industry. Mm -hmm. And what it really helped me see too is the American the history of jewelry in America is very, very different than the history of jewelry in the European culture and in the Asian culture. And the United States is such a young country. Mm -hmm. And 
we, for so long, we had so much space. Um, We're running out of space, but we still, compared to most other cultures, we still have so much space. And for so long, things have been so inexpensive and so affordable. But in other cultures, um, let's just take uh, let's just take Burma for example, which is you know now a con- communist country, country, and they've gone back um, to calling it Myanmar. Um, the Burmese, as well as the Thai people, as well as the Cambodians, as well as the Vietnamese, all of these countries produce sapphire. These are countries where you find sapphire and ruby. And for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, these people have understood that a single beautiful ruby or a single beautiful sapphire of a certain size, they understand the value of that because these, other than Thailand, these are countries that have been occupied. And at any given moment, suddenly the currency may have no value. And having that beautiful stone or stones sometimes can buy your way to a better life, either in another part of the same country or to another country. Um, you know, you think about you think about during World War II and the, the the hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who literally left European countries with pockets lined in diamonds and gold and had to start their entire lives over again. And it was portable portable wealth. They left everything behind and came to the United States or, you know, Great Britain or other countries. And um, these things were able to help them get reestablished. And um, in the United States, we we don't necessarily look at jewelry like that. We just look at it as more of a commodity. Sure. Um, and so it's it, for me, it's fascinating just to see, how, you know, how jewelry has had a place in our history, in our culture, in our place in yeah. time. Um, it's not just ornamental and decorative. Right. So. Yeah, and, and, and kind of from my side, like growing up in the UK, the only, the first thing I would see or the thing that I grew up on just, you know, when someone says jewelry, you automatically think of the royal family and you mm-hmm. automatically think of the crown mm-hmm. and the diamond encrusted swords mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. ceremonial type of jewelry. Yes. You know, not necessarily, you know, and, and the royals of all this, obviously they wear great jewelry, you right. know, but as a guy growing up, I wouldn't think of that. I would just see the queen in her crown or whoever. Right. Oh, that's, you know, Princess Diana, whoever it was, uh-huh. that was in the crown and stuff. Like, right. oh, that's kind of cool. And, but again, like, because I think most guys just oblivious to that stuff. Sure. You know, but also to your point, the, the history, I never never even thought about the history side of it. And it's, I, I get the sense that history is a huge passion of yours too, especially in it is. related to the jewelry side of things. It is. I, you know, I didn't study history a lot in school. I actually was an English literature major with a minor in political science. Uh, <laughs> never got the degree in architecture, never got the degree in <laughs> Anyway, that's okay. That's okay. I ended up in my happy place, but I, I love, um, I love watching documentaries. I love reading. I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, and I, I, I find it fascinating, um, studying different gemstones and cultures. And, you know, interestingly enough, I was, I was asked several years ago to speak to a group of individuals and, um, 
in preparing my talk, I, I'm very passionate about antique beads. Okay. And um, many, many years ago, I, I really didn't know anything about antique beads. And I was in an antique store in Dallas, Texas, one afternoon with my late husband. And and, and when the antique dealer found out that I was a jeweler, he said, oh, I want to show you something. And he pulled out some of the most beautiful beads I'd ever seen. He said, well, are, are you familiar with Z beads? And I said, no, I have no idea what Z beads are. And he says, oh, well, these, this is a really rare set of Z, Z beads and they're even cataloged um, over here in this book. And he brought the book out and he showed me. And I said, well, what does something like this cost? And, and there's just seven beads, seven beads. And he tells me that the, the set of seven beads is like $26,000. And I couldn't even believe it. I, I just, I had no reference. And I thought, I've just got to find out more. Like, what are these beads? And why would they be $26,000? And where is the market for this? I ended up buying a much less expensive set of Z beads from yeah. him for $500. And then, anyway, come to find out... Um, Beads are, are literally the very first currency that we know of in human civilization. Okay. And so we know from archaeology that we find beads that are 50,000 years old, and this would have been portable wealth. And these beads yeah. would have probably been strung on um, some gut or some, you know, buffalo hide or, you know, wh yeah. whatever, um, whatever the people were hunting and killing and curing and and it just kind of goes from there and so i'm i'm fascinated with how jewelry starts as one thing but then becomes another thing but it's all about it's all about status and wealth uh -huh. in the end it's all about status and wealth always right, That's, right. you know it's it's got to have a you know got to have a bigger diamond than the last person right. you know and it's sometimes those that know know yes. right it's like yes. the watch world you right. know those that know know uh -huh. and those that don't would you know someone could walk in with just a giant plastic rock on their finger and everyone else would be wow you're a man exactly you know, it exactly. cost me 1099 from you know, 7 11 down the road. Exactly. Uh, moving things forward, mm -hmm. then, this store, it's the first time I've ever been in here, uh, a lot bigger than I expected. Because, you, you know, when we're located, you're in the corner and you don't, mm -hmm. you don't expect it to go as deep as it does. Right. Beautiful layout, massive store. Thank um, you. Looks really good. Tell us, for people who, like myself, who are listening that have never been here before, tell me a little bit about kind of, you know, the architecture lover in you that mm -hmm. that designed the store that has all the layout you have everything in certain places like yes. you can go as nerdy as you want on this because I'm really interested in how you lay things out and even like you mentioned earlier the smell of places too mm -hmm. you know it all adds into mm -hmm. the experience mm -hmm. of coming in mm -hmm. and buying you know mm -hmm. your significant other something maybe you're treating yourself after a big business deal or you know whatever mm -hmm. it is so this, this store, um, for many years, was an iconic dress shop by the name of Ruth Myers. Okay. And uh, Ruth had this store in 1987 when I moved here to Oklahoma City as a 23-year-old. Um, sadly, she passed away. And when her family and their partner decided to close the store, I was so shocked that the store had closed that it didn't even dawn on me oh, this, this could be my future home. Uh, at the time, we had been in Cassidy Square for 16 years, and I had been looking for another location, uh, but there just wasn't anything that really worked for me. Yeah. 
so I thought about remodeling my store, but then Ruth Myers closed and I was driving past with my Starbucks cup of coffee one morning and saw the for lease sign and it went, you know, bingo. So, um, anyway, uh, negotiated the lease, got in here, did the demo, and it turns out that this space is 5,700 square feet. Now, I did not really want all 5,700 square feet, but the the way that the space is configured, it was very, very difficult for the landlord to split it up, and so we came to an agreement, a really lovely agreement, um, that that my, my lease arrangements would be a little bit more friendly if I would just take the whole space. So I did. And, you know, being that, um, you know, uh, the architect who never got to practice, I spent hours and hours and hours with the plans, um, just with tracing paper, just figuring and refiguring and refiguring. And of course it, it makes it difficult. There were a couple of load bearing walls that couldn't be moved. Um, obviously you don't want to have to move a lot of plumbing cause that gets very expensive. So it's like, well, I think we're going to have a bathroom here because <laughs> there was a bathroom here. And so let's just leave a bathroom here, but make it bigger. Um, it was, it, it was in the end, I can't believe how hard it was to fit everything in because we had so much, but you know, the more space you have, you're just going to use it all. You're going to fill it somehow. You're going to fill it somehow. I think one of the things I'm most proud of is we now, we had, we dedicated over a thousand square feet to our design lab and production studio. And we upgraded, we made massive upgrades to our manufacturing equipment. And so a lot of people are so excited when they get a new car and they drive the new car off the lot. I'm really, I get really excited about my new laser engraver and my new induction casting system. And now we have, now we have 3D scanners, you know, back in the day, um, I mean, architects, same way you do. I mean, I did take a whole year of drafting and technical drawing when I was younger and everything had to be, you know, done by hand, Mm -hmm. um, with the T square or whatever. And, um, now, uh, if you bring a funky shaped pearl into us, we just put it in the 3D scanner. We spray coat it with a type of powder and, you know, it rotates and the laser reads it and then it it's uploads it incredible. into the CAD program. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, you know, it's just so much fun. And I have two full-time CAD people. Um, occasionally, we do send some things out. Um, I, I can't say 100 thing, 100% of everything we do is made here on premise because, you know, like anybody, there are certain things we don't do well. And so, you know, over the years, I've found fabulous people elsewhere. But I just love that design lab. I love um, all of our new equipment. Um, we have a new laser engraver that just is unbelievable. Uh, I think it could fly us to Mars and back if we knew, you know, how to make it do that. Um, and then as far as just the overall decor of the store, my, my former location had kind of a, a loft feeling. And I really liked that. I, I am here usually eight hours a day. Sometimes I'm here longer and I want to feel really comfortable in my store. And I want, I want our guests to feel just as comfortable as I do. Um, I think it can be intimidating for people to come into a jewelry store and we don't want that. I don't want people to be intimidated. Um, and so I try to decorate the space in a way that it feels like perhaps you're in someone's living room. I got that feeling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So lots of natural elements. Um, 
Um, a lot of the artwork is for sale that hangs on the walls. Although if it doesn't sell, that's okay because I only pick things I like and, uh, yeah. So it's a very inviting place. Thank you. Thank you. One, one thing I want to dive into and something you kind of mentioned a little bit ago was, you know, when we can when you came to the idea that, Hey, I, 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 when I was at my job, I wasn't able to do things I wanted Mm -hmm. to do the way I did it. And that's why Mm -hmm. I started my own Mm -hmm. business. Dive into that for me. Why do you do the things that you... You know what? what, One of the things that was really frustrating to me as a young person, I I have to tell you, I never, ever thought I would end up being in jewelry sales. Mm -hmm. Um, I started out at at the bench, became a model maker, learned how to do um, casting, polishing, finishing, was just starting to learn setting when I had the opportunity to move from Tulsa to Oklahoma City and open up a second location. And, and so I kind of had to decide, do I want to, you know, do, do I want to stay at the bench or do I really want to get out in front of people and be a designer? And um, anyway, I, I, I really was ready to move. So I came to Oklahoma City. And um, one of the things that was frustrating to me in, in selling situations is that my clients kind of looked at me as nothing more than a used car salesman. And, you know, if you can kind of remember back in the day, those commercials, and you still you still see the craziest commercials, you know, for cars on television. But I just, there there's something about it that made me feel really dirty, okay? And just being blunt. Um, my job was to design jewelry, but my job was also to sell jewelry that we had in the case. And... I couldn't understand why sometimes I felt like people didn't trust me. Mm-hmm. And as my career progressed, it became really, really important for me uh, to be trusted. And the more I worked in the industry, I saw that there were definitely best practices and worst practices. And as I got to know other retailers in different areas of the country, I saw that there were people, in my opinion, who were doing things better than others. And um, I wanted to be one of those people. And so um, it's very important for me to be transparent in everything that we do. And that starts with our staff. And so my entire staff knows we have to be transparent with each other. Otherwise, we're not going to be transparent to our clients. Um, so transparency and honesty are a, are a core of what we do. People come to us and they're trusting us um, because we do a lot of repair and we do a lot of refurbishment of um, pre-owned and antique pieces. And when you have someone who's coming in, um, and, and, and maybe maybe what they have isn't that expensive, but maybe it's a fourth-generation heirloom, right? And they're trusting us to take the best care of that. You know, they're not taking it somewhere else. And so um, we want to care for that as if it was our own. And we take that very, very seriously. Likewise, I mean, some I, people bring very, very expensive things in here. Uh, maybe they purchased it from us. Maybe they did not. But um, they they trust us to do the ring sizing or to make the necklace shorter. And it's our job to make sure that they understand every single thing we're going to do, why we're going to do it, why it's going to cost what it does. And if the piece comes to us, and has some sort of damage, you know, it's our job to point that out to them, you know, to explain 
you know, why something may have happened. And I, um, you know, not everybody does it that way. I hate to say that. Not yeah. everybody does it that way. Um, it, it's not just our industry. It's every industry. Uh-huh. Um, and it just makes me very angry. I remember a lady years ago came in to me. She um, had been on a cruise and the cruise stopped in Hong Kong. And the cruise ship took them to some jewelry store and she bought what she thought was a really expensive, fabulous piece of jadeite. And when she showed it to me, you know, my eyes, I'm like, wow. And she told me what she paid for it. And, you know, I took it back to my gemologist and the next day I had to give her the bad news that it was basically a piece of plastic. Right. Yeah. And that just makes me very angry. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a, there's a saying in our business that if you don't know your jewelry, know your jeweler. Mm-hmm. And I want people to know that they can come to Navy Fine Jewelry. And we, if we, if we can't tell them on the spot, we're going to find out the answer. You know, whatever the situation may be. And um, we stand behind everything we sell and everything we do, 382 million percent. Um, and it's just, I don't ever, I don't ever want someone to say, oh, gee, you know, I went to Navy Fine Jewelry and they sold me something that wasn't what they said they sold me right. or XYZ. Mm-hmm. That's just not how we operate here. Yeah. Right? Well, and, and reputation is everything. It is. Right? And, and it regardless is. of what business you're in, I mean, especially in sales and when you're selling products, mm-hmm. uh, especially if they are, mm-hmm. you know, such products that carry so much significance to a certain family yes. member, you know, it might be rings, whatever it is, you know, watches, anything, you know, most of the items in here, people are buying because they're celebrating something. Yes. It's a birthday present, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and, and they're taking that trust in you yes. so that, you know, they feel great give, gifting that to somebody else. And I've heard, you know, we all heard the horror stories, you know, it's online shopping channels and all right. the other stuff and mm-hmm. you get it and you're like, how much have I paid for this? And it's valued at what? You exactly. Know, it's, it's, it's awful. And then the sad part is you have to, you know, that's, that's the sad side of your business, right? When you have to make that phone call to say, look, I, yes. I know you think this is the greatest thing ever, but yes, it's a piece of Lego or you know, right. whatever it is, right? Like, right. That's the sad exactly. side. Exactly. Um, well, these are, you know, um, there's a lot of jewelry out there, and there's a reason why it's priced the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think that regardless of price, what we offer here is the best value. Yeah. We try to, all, day in and day out, offer a great value, whether it's um, in our products or our services. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Well, obviously, the holidays are coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christmas trees are going up sooner. Basically, Christmas trees go up after Thanksgiving, after <laughs> Halloween now, uh, which I, I'm not opposed to. I was initially. Uh, I was a very strict, you know, Christmas starts the first of December. Uh-huh. And since being in the States and having my own house, it starts the day after Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Our tree is up. Um, you know, ours is up too. And I, I, would, I would tell you, I normally wouldn't put it up until after same. Thanksgiving, but we had to, we had to film a Christmas uh, television commercial so guess what my husband George put up the Christmas trees at home and in the store yeah Uh, to that point then uh, you guys do anything specific obviously small business Saturday is coming up and I yes I feel bad calling you guys a small business Uh I walk in here I'm like you're not a small business but when you define small business you well we're smaller than Cartier that. and we're right. smaller than Tiffany yes, and company yes exactly so under those definitions you're our small business um, 
obviously that's next Saturday. Uh, but yeah, do you have any big plans for Christmas and small business Saturday? Any, you know, anything coming up or things that you want to tell people? Well, to here, on by? here's what I'll say. Um, our customers are fiercely loyal. Now we know a lot of them travel and shop elsewhere, but, um, but, but we have the most wonderful, loyal clients in the whole world. And many of them even say, hey, I really want to get this and I really want to try to get it from you. Can you get it from me? Which I just want to say to everybody out there, we appreciate it so much. As far as uh, Black Friday and Small Business Saturday, once upon a time we tried some things and they just really didn't work for us. Um, our clients know where we are. Our new clients are finding us. Uh, we will be open uh, on Small Business Saturday from 10 a.m. until 5 p.m. And what everybody can expect when they come in here is a bunch of smiling, friendly people uh, ready to meet and greet you and help you do whatever you need to do, whether it's just getting something cleaned, something repaired, or if you're really, um, we have a, something called a wish list. Okay. So a lot of times what uh, the ladies like to do this time of year is come in and look around and put three to five items on their wish list so that then their boyfriend or husband mm -hmm. can just kind of come in and know what they like and uh, surprise them. In other words, it's not, hey, this yeah. is the one thing I like, please get it for me. <laughs> right. You know, it can be um, a range of items yeah. and a range of prices, and that way uh, it's not so intimidating. So I would say uh, Small Business Saturday and Black Friday uh, would be great days to come in here and get a wish list started. Right. That's a great, I mean, yeah. for a guy who's terrible mm -hmm. at shopping for uh -huh. his wife, that is the greatest yes. thing ever, you know, she can come and, and pick a few things and then I can pick one. And the other thing is we have a, we have a terrific line. Um, in my old store, I didn't have room for gifts and we do mm -hmm. carry a, a small, but well curated line mm -hmm. of gift items. And the favorite is our jingle knock ornaments. Okay. They are so beautiful. They are a higher end Christmas ornament. I think they retail for around 65 to $75 a piece, but they are spectacular. They are all made, uh, I believe, in Portugal, all hand-painted, and uh, we have plenty for sale, but once they're gone, they're gone, and we won't have them until next year, and they make great hostess gifts. They make a great family gift. Um, I know I'm getting my, my daughter just got engaged and is getting married next year, and I want to start giving her one every year so that she and her fiance, once they get married, will have a nice collection. That's what, it's funny you said that. That's what my, my mother-in-law did for my wife was every year she would just buy her, mm -hmm. as a kid, she would just buy her stuff. So all of the ornaments we have have a date on the back of them. Yes. It just, it just brings back that memory. I know. Right? I love a family tree. Yeah, it's awesome. Right? Uh, okay, final two things. Uh -huh. uh, a little bit of consumer advice for people. What are your two picks? Uh, if someone's going to come in and, and one for the guy side, one for the girl side, mm -hmm. what would you say are your two? And it could be anything. If a guy's coming in shopping for his wife, what would you say? Hey, just, I think you should grab this. And this is an extremely broad question and probably mm -hmm. tough for you to answer, but one on the guy side, one on the girl side, what's either the best sellers or something that's really popular right now? So um, for a man who's shopping for a lady, um, one line that we carry is called Jude Francis, and this line has been wildly popular for 20 years. And the reason is they make a variety of hoop, what we call a huggy hoop earring. And some have more diamonds, some have less, 
but they make charms that go on these hoop earrings and then they make frames and it's kind of a build your own earring mm-hmm. scenario and what's beautiful about it is the designers have done a great job at every year coming out with more and new and th- different colors and things that are current and uh you can you can build your own earring in any price range and once you buy that little huggy hoop you never have to buy it again so men love that and they just come in every year for christmas and anniversaries and birthdays and add a you know different color charm or a pearl or a frame or the white gold or the yellow gold and I started my set probably, you know, 20 years ago when we got the line, and I still wear it to this day. It's still very current. For the women shopping for men, we have a fabulous line of high-end writing instruments by David Oscarson, and then um, wonderful sterling silver, very masculine and cool bracelets by David Heston. He's from the San Francisco area and he's a wonderful silversmith. And then um, my husband, George, I gave him a lapel pen about a year and a half ago by one of my favorite German artists, Peter Schmidt. And he gets so many compliments that now we're stocking the lapel pens. They're all one of a kind. They're very affordable. And for the man who puts a sport coat on um, every day or a suit and a tie, this can be um, a really fantastic addition to his wardrobe. Awesome. What a great way to finish. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time out to share your story and uh, tell us and give us some great consumer advice. And, And I love... You know, now I, I drive by here, I go to Cool Greens or I'm mm-hmm. going to Satin Grill or whatever it is. Um, you know, the beauty of thing this podcast is that people drive by here, they see the name, they see the social media or the website, and now they know your story. They know mm-hmm. that, you know, you grew up a bit of a tomboy. You thought the last thing you thought would be owning a jewelry store. You thought you'd be designing buildings mm-hmm. and architect. And here we are, yeah. you know, 39 years of, of being in this industry. And, and you have this beautiful store and, and continue to have that same fire and passion, not only just for the jewelry, but for the history of it too, yes. which is amazing. 100%. So for people listening, I will link the Instagram page below and the website. They can go check that out and swing by. And if they do swing by tell them that they heard you on the podcast because that makes me feel great (laughs) (laughs) please Uh, love it yeah thank you so much and for everyone listening we'll catch you next episode cheers thank you hope you guys enjoyed that great episode thank you so much for listening as always huge shout out to our sponsors the oklahoma hall of fame sharing oklahoma story through its people since 1927 for more information on the oklahoma hall of fame go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on instagram for daily updates at oklahoma hof our other sponsor the chickasaw nation amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and finally our third sponsor for today the oklahoma 988 mental health lifeline 988 is the direct three-digit lifeline that connects you with the trained behavioral health professionals that can get all oklahomans the help that they need learn more by visiting 988oklahoma.com oklahoma.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.